Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of January 20th, 2020. On the show today, we review Epcot's three new films, and in our main segment, Jim talks about the Japanese pavilion's never-built marquee attraction, The Winds of Change. Let's get started by bringing in the man who reminds you to schedule your next dental checkup early in February so that you can do the hidden pictures in the Highlights magazine before some darn kid ruins it. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Oh, goofs and gallant. I went to high school with those guys. I want to say gallant went into philanthropy and goofus politics. It makes complete sense, Jim. Makes complete sense. There you go. (laughs) Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Hondowitz, A. Marshitz, and Ferdiaz, Sr., and longtime subscribers, Dana H., Matt C., and Jason T. True story, Jim. Before Disney installed an electric motor, these folks turned the hand crank that raised and lowered Swingin' Teddy Barra during every performance of the Country Bear Jamboree. These days, they take turns on the rotisserie over at Ronto's Roasters in Galaxy's Edge. So it just goes to show, Jim, that if you learn a transferable skill... You can get a job anywhere. Now, they switch off with each arm, right? Because as I understand it, you end up with a killer bicep. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, shirts fit better when you do both of them. Yeah, ah, true. Got it. <laughs> All right, Jim, uh, we're going to do the news. And in the news segment, we're going to talk about the three new films over at Epcot. Jim, uh, which movie do you want to talk about first? Well, how about that tale as old as time? The Beauty and the Beast sing-along? Beauty and the Beast sing-along over at France. All right. So uh, first thing to note about this is that the film runs from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. And it's roughly 10 minutes long. So my guess is they're getting through at least three shows an hour on this, if not more. Um, The lobby of the theater is now redone with show artifacts from France Mm -hmm. that come from the different arts the different uh, visual arts, so like theater, ballet, and uh, music, and so on. Uh, they show costumes, period appropriate for the time um, that are in there. So in the um, that are in there. So the the lobby itself is transformed a little bit. They're really nice to look at the costumes. Obviously, there's a Disney link in them, so there's a there's a costume for Quasimodo mm-hmm. and so on. But uh, just like the old film, yeah, there's a cast member who gets up and explains where they're from in France and what you're going to see in the new film, and then you walk into the theater. And Jim, I don't know how you felt about the original Impressions de France film. How, how did you feel about it? I got a, a new appreciation for that show and, and how hard it was to pull off in its five-screen format. But if you think about the Ratatouille ride coming in and how they're shoehorning characters left and right into Epcot, you kind of saw this one coming, didn't you? Right. I agree. I think the uh, so the film is shown, the Impressions de France film is shown in a 200-degree screen. Mm-hmm. So it's got several movie screens clumped together. Yeah. I always thought the music was fantastic. I thought the visuals were excellent. Mm-hmm. The first time that I went to Paris, I coincidentally stayed on one of the streets where they actually shot part of the film. Oh, cool. And both ironically and literally, I had a sense of deja vu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I've seen this street somewhere before. <laughs> where, I'm not French. Where have I seen this street? Mm-hmm. And then it you know, it hit me uh, after a while that it was there. Just remember the uh, the scene where the horses come out of um, one of the, uh, it's like a police march. They come out of like a police station. They march on the street. I was actually on that street. Oh, wow. When I stayed in Paris the, uh, the first time. So, uh, so that was great. The thing that I've always complained about the film is, is not so much the content as the fact that it was old. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think I've said this on the, the show before in the, in the market scene, mm-hmm. 
film in France, the prices are, were shown in, in francs, mm -hmm. French, French francs, which France stopped using in 1999, right? So, so more than 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. It would be nice if we could get an updated film on that. But other than that, I mean, the film was, the film was fantastic, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So Disney apparently thought that, uh, to your point, injecting characters into France was the way to go rather than updating the film. So what we got is the Beauty and the Beast sing-along. So there are a couple of things, interesting things about the film. Number one is that it doesn't use the entire 200-degree movie screen. It's focused on just the single main segment of the screen. Uh, so it's like a regular movie okay. in front of you. It's not a widescreen format. Simple movie, straight ahead. Mm -hmm. Not sure why they did that. The other interesting thing to note is that it's more than a retelling of Beauty and the Beast with songs mm -hmm. in that the premise of the film is that it tries to explain how Belle and Beast actually fell in love. And here they're doing a little bit of revisionist history mm -hmm. because they're saying that it's LeFou, Gaston's sidekick, mm -hmm. who actually worked behind the scenes to get Belle and Beast together. So I'm going to pause for a second there, Jim, for your reaction to that. If I understand correctly, Angela Lansbury came back and it, it and narrates this. So she narrates it and does some of the singing, right? So Angela Lansbury comes back. She's she sounds great mm -hmm. in it. It's it's warm and comforting to hear Angela Lansbury in this role. Okay. And there are a few new animation scenes interspersed within the film clip. So it's a mix of a couple of new scenes that sort of tie the story together. Mm -hmm. Because remember, during the during the actual story, we never got the sense that it was LeFou. Mm -hmm in the background working to bring Bell and Beast together, right? Never, it never came up. So they, apparently new animation was drawn to, to make that happen, to make it seem like this is, was actually the story. So you get some behind-the-scenes cuts okay. and whatnot that weren't in the original film. You also get four or five songs, depending on how you, you want to count it. Mm -hmm. It starts with uh, Bell song, so going through the village. There's Beauty and the Beast. And there's Be Our Guest, of course, because you have to have Be Our Guest. Mm -hmm. Gaston song. And then they do a reprise of the last part of, of Beauty and the Beast again to sort of finish it off. Mm -hmm. So five songs. Uh, running time is, I think, about 10 minutes-ish. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is it felt a little long uh, because even though they're, they're going through the story and they're trying to explain to you sort of how LeFou brought the couple together, it's still, it's a little slow and in places, which is really interesting, right? For a 10-minute film with four songs in it, where you're learning new things about it, the, the idea that it's a little slow in the beginning is a bit surprising. Yeah. When you think about, this is hand-drawn animated film from 91? Right. And you can tell. You can tell it's hand-drawn because you look at it and you're, for audiences who are now used to mm -hmm. computer-generated, you know, fairly realistic imagery, mm -hmm. to see, like, for example, how crude the prince's mouth was drawn, mm -hmm. relatively speaking, right? As compared to like Buzz Lightyear's mouth, mm -hmm. for example. It was startling. I mean, some of that there, there looks, looks rough mm -hmm. in comparison, right? To what, we, what we're used to today. You know, it's very angular. There's all the famous stories about, it was the folks who used to work at Disney Animation Studios Florida who got the wrong set of, of model sheets who... It's got to be tough. Yeah. They, they did the Kill the Beast section of that movie, and it was one of these things where it's like, why do the villagers in the Kill the Beast section not look like the villagers that we met at the start of the movie? Completely separate an villages. an entirely different, you know, angry mob <laughs> just shows up. It's like the people who are in the village and the people who want to burn things down, two completely separate groups. Yeah, go figure. Within the village. <laughs> that's, that's, that explains it right there. 
So the uh, so yeah, as I mentioned there are four songs. You know, one of them is reprised. But the main thing I got out of this film mm-hmm. is a renewed appreciation of how great the lyrics were nice. for the original songs. If you look at the wordplay yeah. in the songs, I mean, it's number one. It's an art to write mm-hmm. a song that rhymes, right? A halfway decent song that rhymes. Yep. But if you look at the word choices and the phrasing within those songs, they're kind of genius, right? I mean, that was Howard Ashman. Clever phrasing. We lost Howard before Beauty and the Beast even arrived in theaters. It's just kind of heartbreaking when you look at the lyrics that he did for for Mermaid and for Aladdin and for Beast and to think of what we lost when we lost that guy. Yeah. I mean, just very, very, very good lyrics. Uh, Inventive, not, they don't sing down to, to kids, right? And the songs are also able to be appreciated by adults. Yeah, the lyrics are fantastic. So I got a new appreciation of those lyrics from the song from the film. The problem, though, is last week or a couple of weeks ago, the background music in World Showcase changed. Specifically in France, mm-hmm. the old background music went away, and now the background music loop includes Disney music in it. So some of these songs are part of the background music that you hear outside the France Pavilion, and you can. Also hear them around Epcot now as part of the Festival of the Arts. Like they're playing them in you know, certain booths and mm-hmm. as you're walking around in Future World, you can sort of hear them. So it, to me, it sort of begs the question of why, you know, in the France Pavilion, we needed to get rid of a unique film about actual France with actual French people showing actual French culture, right? To show a, you know, a rehashed film from 30 years ago with songs that we can hear literally throughout three other parks. Like, why did we need to do this? I don't think it's great. And, and so there's the impression coming out of it. It's not. It's not terrible. It's not the worst thing that that Disney's ever done. By the way, Jim, mm-hmm. uh, we should mention to our listeners that you and I are working on a show for the worst attra- Disney attractions of all time. Mm-hmm. But the people that I, was, I saw the show with were generally unimpressed with it. And so coming out of it, our topic of discussion was how long this film's going to last mm-hmm. before something else comes in to replace it. So that's where we we got the idea for we should do a show on the shortest running Disney attractions of all time. Um, again, I'm not saying this is horrible. We're going to talk about at least one film that, that just opened that's that's significantly worse. Mm. But it doesn't feel like this is what I would go to the France Pavilion for, mm-hmm. right? Even if you wanted to put IP characters in France, this might not be the, the long-term solution to how you want to do that. So I don't think it's that great. Okay. Staying in World uh, Showcase though, Jim, let's talk about Canada Far and Wide, mm-hmm. which I actually I do like quite a bit. So Canada Far and Wide, this is the third Circle Vision 360 film to showcase Canada's nature, people, and cities. As you remember, the first film, O Canada, ran from 82 to 2007. Great imagery, super catchy song, undoubtedly inspired throngs of people to visit, including me. Mm-hmm. I like. I went to Montreal the first time because it looked great in the film, mm-hmm. and I loved it, right? But but let's be honest. I mean, if we're, if we're being honest among, among ourselves, right, we're with friends. Mm-hmm. If the original film had a fault, it was that it was kind of serious, right? Maybe a little too reverent for what a lot of us look at as our fun neighbors to the north, Mm -hmm. right? When Bill Bosch went to do the film, he actually reached out to the Canadian Ministry of Tourism and basically explained, hey, we've got this Circle Vision 360 film in the works, and we'd love to make sure that we get all of the great things of Canada. And so they in turn looped in each of the provinces 
Ministry of Tourism. So in the end... Oh, they're dealing with bureaucracies, dear God. But the thing is, you remember, when Canadians complained about this film, they talked about how it was trees, mounties, hockey, was kind of the the cliche of their country. But their own ministries of tourism, it's like, well, we got to get the Rockies in there. Yeah, yeah, we have to show hockey. We have to show uh, skiing, right? Yeah, Yeah. so it kind of laying the blame Disney, and it's like, well, you you should talk to your own ministries of tourism. They're the ones who suggested (laughs) to us what we do. Left hand, right hand, you guys should talk. (laughs) So the second version of O Canada, Mm -hmm. right, in 2007, came along, uh, comedian Martin Short Mm -hmm. as the on-screen narrator, and it it sort of attempted to address both the uh, the original sort of criticism about the film that was too serious. And to your point, it also directly addressed the cliches, right? So at the beginning of the uh, O Canada film, Martin Short actually does jokes or skits related to igloos and penguins, yep. right? And yep. that it snows 365 days a year, mm-hmm. right? And Martin Short actually marvels in the film that his supposedly old family movies were somehow coincidentally also filmed in circle vision, right? So, so humor, right? Yeah. And, and so like the original film, it, it did a great job of, of showing off the country and promoting tourism. So the new film, I think, is the best version yet. It has like all of the great scenery that you would want in a 360 degree film with a faster, more modern script. And it works literally from one end of the country to the other. So just like the previous films, you go through Montreal, you go through Quebec City, you go through Calgary, you still have the stampede scenes, you get Vancouver, they all get their own segments. And a lot of the film, I don't say not a lot, some of the film is reused. So if you, li- if you like the previous two films, you'll see a lot of the previous films in the current film. That's great. But there are additional clips of Canada's capital. So Ottawa gets its own little segment. And then this is interesting. Mm-hmm. The new film specifically mentions Canada's three territories, the Yukon, the Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. Mm-hmm. And it highlights the indigenous people and the cultures of that. So that is, that's, I think, one really interesting addition. I've always enjoyed this film. Back in the day, this was one of two Circle Vision movies for this park. China, the other one? Yeah, and in order to try to give them different identities, back in the day, you know, Randy Bright, the gentleman who was in charge of films for for this park the canada pavilion at least the first iteration deliberately didn't have a narrator because the chinese pavilion did it had the the ghost of that poet i'm blanking his name lipo there we go how is this not a jeopardy question jim <laughs> <laughs> that would have been 800 dollars in my pocket right there in 2008 the chinese film bureau puts together this new set of rules that it, it apply to all films from the West that are going to be shown in China. And one of the things that they insist has to either be cut or altered from films coming in from the West are any mention of ghosts or the supernatural. So that version of the Circle Vision film couldn't even play in China because it had a ghost in it. <laughs> Disney's film on China couldn't play in China? Yes. That's actually why when you look at Hong Kong Disneyland... They don't have a haunted mansion, but they do have a mystic manor. That's a really fine cultural distinction there. How is it How is it you can have a, a mystic manor without a haunted mansion? Shanghai Disneyland has the Pirates of the Caribbean, Battle for the Sunken Treasure, which is filled with undead pirates, 
which I'm pretty sure is supernatural. <laughs> I don't know. Jim, neither you or I have actually been to China. We don't know what goes on there. This is true. <laughs> For all we know, it's populated by, by the undead. There's at least three inappropriate jokes here I can't do. So moving on, back to <laughs> Canada. Right. There we go. So uh, so going back to the uh, the Canada thing. So the the new film highlights the indigenous people and the cultures of Canada's three territories, again, the Yukon, the Northwest, and the Nunavut. And the subject of people and culture is, is one of which Canadians are rightfully proud, right? And in fact, it actually comes up in the first few seconds of the far and wide script in this bit of dialogue. It starts off with, Canada has remained a cultural mosaic, a place where you can keep and nurture your language and traditions while embracing the future. So, it's a theme park, right? And there are certain things that you can and can't expect in a theme park film. Mm-hmm. I don't expect the Canada film to mention that Canada has a actually a points-based immigration system that favors young, employed, college-educated immigrants already fluent in English or French. Right? We'll set that aside, right? Mm-hmm. Don't, don't need to mention that in the film. And keeping in mind, Jim, that I actually don't speak Canadian, mm-hmm. right? So when I translated this to American, to me, it sounded either as a fact-based statement about Canada's national values or the most Canadian way of drawing a subtle distinction between Canada and the United States regarding immigration policy. It was really interesting to see. Mm-hmm. So uh, I saw the film with some friends, mm-hmm. some friends who are listeners, by the way. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for, uh, for, for watching with me. And then afterwards, I met another friend who had also seen the film. And we debated what that sentence meant, right? What is the meaning of Canada has remained a cultural mosaic, a place where you can keep and nurture your language and traditions while embracing your future? What, what, what do they mean by that, right? So on one hand, it, again, could have just been a, a simple statement about Canada's values. But if it was about Canada's immigration system, right? Mm. We talked about whether one should have like Canada's formal points-based system for immigration and then so maybe an easier path into society versus what the United States has, right? Arguably a more open policy that somehow seems to produce its more than its share of go back where you came from sentiment later on, right? There are two different approaches with two different long-term consequences, right? So, uh, and this is why I think it's interesting, right? If you look at back, back at what, uh, how Epcot was dedicated, right? Mm-hmm. Epcot's dedication is to entertain, inform, and inspire man's ability to shape a world that offers hope to people everywhere. In this little slice of world showcase does exactly that. I mean, if, if the job was to to make you think about like what's a good immigration policy, mm-hmm. that's exactly what it did. It was kind of great. I was really happy with that. Back in the day, that's what Epcot did. Yeah. The very next thing we'll be talking about, Awesome Planet, is what? The replacement for Symbiosis, which one and, might uh, argue was the life, yeah. most Epcot film ever. It was one of these things where it was this film that assumed that somebody who came to a theme park could deal with a film that talked about a complex issue. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. That, uh, that's not the feedback I'm getting okay. lately on that. So the, the Canada Far and Wide mm-hmm. film closes with the original movie's classic song, Canada, Your Lifetime Journey. Mm-hmm. I think one of the best songs ever in World Showcase. Mm-hmm. It's performed by uh, Eva Avila, the uh, the winner from Canadian Idol. Mm-hmm. So it's not the original song, but still a great performance. My summary of this entire film is that the only better way to end it would be if the gift shop had direct flights to Shakutami and everyone should go see it. I think it's a fantastic addition to World Showcase. Best Canada film yet. I see here in your show notes, running time around 11 minutes. 
Yeah. So there's a, um, so it's about 11 minutes. There's a, when you, this is one interesting thing. You walk into the theater now and instead of dark screens, Mm -hmm. you're surrounded by a 360 degree projection of a forest, Mm -hmm. which is kind of, kind of great. I don't know why Disney's not doing that in other Mm -hmm. movie theaters. Instead of walking into a, a, a giant dark bowl, you're walking into a nice little forest. It's got some scenery. It's pleasant to look at. And then there's a little bit of show narration at the beginning of it explaining where the word Canada mm-hmm. comes from. So depending on how you view that mm-hmm. scenery and that little bit of introductory exposition about the origin of the word Canada, like if, if you consider that part of the entertainment, mm-hmm. right, then it's, about, it's closer to 11 minutes. Mm-hmm. If you don't think the movie starts until the movie actually starts, It's probably closer to 10 minutes. So, you know, when trying to time it, I said about 11. Okay. Okay. You mentioned narration. So this time around, it's Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, who who are two of my favorites from back in the SCTV days. Right. Noted Canadians. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and they're all on the the show uh, Schitt's Creek now, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So every Disney attraction now has to have a tie-in to some other property. Do you know what this one is, Jim? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no. It took me a few minutes to, to look it up. But apparently, uh, Eugene Levy and his son, Dan, are the creators of the TV series, Schitt's Creek. Mm-hmm. And Dan recently signed a three-year development deal with ABC Television to produce new TV series. So, Eugene and Dan are going to work with ABC going forward mm-hmm. to develop new uh, new TV franchises. And that's the tie-in to, to, to the rest of the network. You know there's got to be an angle somewhere, Jim, right? Oh, no doubt. But for those of us who are, are relatively elderly, uh, Eugene's work for Disney as far back as 84. He was the scientist who pursued Madison the Mermaid in Splash. Oh, really? And oh. let's not forget that he was also the voice of Dory's dad in Finding Dory. So he's got oh. his Disney bona fides. So, uh, so his connection is there, ABC. So you mentioned uh, the third... New film, which is Awesome Planet, showing at the Land Pavilion. Jim, they can't all be winners, and this is an example of that. So my review of this film actually starts out with this sentence. Mm-hmm. If Awesome Planet is a preview of Epcot attractions to come, then the Earth is doomed and we're all going to die. <laughs> my one-sentence summary of this film is, is there's nothing good is going to happen mm-hmm. to the rest of it. So here's, here's what I like about the film, right? It's is beautiful. Visuals are gorgeous. They're comprehensive. They cover the Earth's animals. They cover the Earth's biomes. And to their credit, right, they actually use the word biomes instead of environment. So there's this veneer of science about it. And it looks great. Also, to their credit, as a large multinational corporation, Disney actually presents the best scientific theories of the time whenever it does public presentations like this. So if we're talking about the Earth's biodiversity through evolution to dinosaur extinction to how the solar system and the universe were formed, Disney looks for the best science at the time and presents that to the public, right, it, as, as fact. And to their credit, they do a good job of that. And the beginning of Awesome Planet continues this. They have this fantastic clip explaining the giant impact hypothesis, which shows how the Earth and Moon were formed by the collision with the early Earth and a planet about the size of Mars. I recently like became, became re-familiar with this. Mm-hmm. It's only been in the last couple of weeks because there's been uh, some news around how 
vestiges of this impact may be found in the molten core of the earth. And we'll leave that for another show. But it was great to see that Disney did this. So that's fantastic, right? Another good thing is that Awesome Planet doesn't shy away from showing the threats that the planet is currently facing. So it specifically mentions rising temperatures, higher sea levels, more intense storms, and more wildfires, right? So like I'm halfway through the film or three quarters of the way through the film and I'm thinking, okay, it looks good. We've got the science part. We've talked about the challenges. I've got some hope, right? There's, there's hope for us after all, right? And then it went south. So I'll pause before I get to that. Jim, your, your thoughts so far in the film. This sounds very familiar to certain aspects of symbiosis and to a lesser extent, the circle of life and environmental fable in that explaining right. that these things are going on, but if we're conscientious about this and don't necessarily make what the move that's smart for right now, but you know, looking further on down the pike, we, we make the smart decision for the future that, that this will work out. So oh, that's exactly it. So this is, this is what's, this is the film's fatal flaw, right? It doesn't mention at all the root cause of those problems or what we can do to solve them. So yeah. So to your point, right? Circle of life had an entire segment dedicated to man's negative impacts on the environment with a, with an uplifting message on how to improve things, right? It doesn't all have to be doom and gloom. It doesn't have to be depressing, Here's the problem. Here's what we've done. Here are some things we can do to fix it, right? And for, for Epcot, right, that's, that message is important. That, that structure of the message is important. And I say it for this reason. Lots of people will say, I don't want to see that in a, in a theme park film. But let me point out, Epcot is literally dedicated. Its dedication is to improve mankind's world. That is why the park exists. So in that context... You're not explaining like the cause effect solution loop for environmental impacts is almost negligence. But the thing that kind of like, I, I, I thought about this all night. Like I got to see the film last night as a preview. Thought about it all night. Cause again, the visuals were great. The there's, there is sort of an upbeat undercurrent met to it. And I thought well, that's generally pretty, pretty pleasant. But the more I thought about the film, the more this thing sort of gnawed at me. And here's the big problem, Right. The film's script narrator is Ty Burrell, who uh, is in Disney's Modern Family TV show. Right? You've seen the you've seen the film uh, the TV series, Jim? Yeah, sure. For all the years it's been on, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so in the in Modern Family, Ty Burrell's character is Phil Dunphy, who's a real estate agent. Right. Mm -hmm. So the script's premise is that you're looking for a planet to buy. And Phil is walking you through the benefits of buying the earth. He even includes the use of the phrase location, 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 right? So he's acting as a real estate agent, right? So Disney brings in somebody from their own IP to do the narration using a character familiar to people who've seen the film. And this is the thing sort of that, that got me, that put me over the edge, right? Disney thought it was more important for the Awesome Planet script, which is about the planet's natural world, in a pavilion literally called The Land to have a tie-in to a fictional real estate agent from one of its TV franchises than to explain the cause of mankind's greatest environmental threats and what we can do to solve them. What on earth would you do that for in Epcot? And, and so, <laughs> so I walked out with, uh, I walked out of Epcot last night with my you know, friend who also had seen it. And I'm like, let me just say this for Epcot as well as for the planet. 
if that's what we're we're looking forward to, it was all great while it lasted. Mm. I could have taken it in in Canada, right? Because again, there are certain things that you can expect in a World Circus film, and certain th- certain things that you can't. Mm. But in a pavilion dedicated to the land, in the part of the park that is dedicated to bettering mankind's lot mm-hmm. on Earth, we can't talk about problems and solutions. Like we're we're doomed. We're doomed. Anyway, film's about ten minutes long. Great visuals. Jumping back to 82, the setup for the land is 75 to 90% of Americans are, are right-handed. So you'd enter the pavilion and there was the harvest theater and you'd go into the harvest theater and you'd sit down and you'd see symbiosis, which set up the concept of technological progress and, and being even environmental, you know, league friendly, weren't mutually exclusive, that there, there was a way we could do this. And then the way the theater was set up, you had to go downstairs, you walked out the door, and you were basically funneled straight into Listen to the Land, which then walked you through, this is how we can do this. Right, right. So, if, yeah, if you think about Listen with the Land or Living with the Land, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Living with the Land specifically says, man has overused the land, but here are some new ways yeah. that we can work with the land better, Right. That message doesn't seem to bother anyone. I don't think it's it's hugely controversial. And the the living with the land ride is a little gem mm-hmm. in Epcot, right? I mean, none of us are going to go ever going to see a greenhouse mm-hmm. that is as interesting as what we float through mm-hmm. in living with the land. And so Disney can do it. Mm-hmm. But again, the fact that they prioritized let's do a, a modern family tie-in in the script mm-hmm. over the kinds of things that Epcot should be doing, right? Just Ah, oh, just rubs me the wrong way. If you look at the show times here, Beauty and the Beast is 10 minutes long. Yeah. Canada, far and wide. 10 minutes, 11. 10 minutes, 11 minutes. Yeah, yeah. These are all like bing, bing, bing. And every show that they replaced was 17 minutes, 18 minutes, 20 minutes long. So that yeah, also that tells you yeah. about the new Epcot. Let's move <laughs> it along here, folks. You know, we want you, we want you to get those 10 ride experiences in per day, which then makes you feel like, You've got your money's worth for, you know, coming through the turnstile. Yeah. A 20-minute film on the environment may, may be too much. But again, Disney has had, has done better ways of presenting these kinds of things. And the fact that they prioritize pulling in IP over, over that is, is problematic. So it'll be interesting to see what the feedback is on this. Like I said, the visuals are great. I, um, I was uh, walking out and somebody had said the way that they paced the clips at the beginning where they show like, you know, animals, camels, mountains, whales, you know, baby sea lions, things like that. It looked like an Apple screensaver and they meant that in a good way. Like, and, and I understand, right? Because Apple makes some gorgeous scenery mm. for the screensavers. It looked like a, an Apple TV screensaver in the most positive way that you could, you could think of that. But in terms of message, it's like there's no there there. So we'll see. Mm. All right, Jim, let's take a quick break. When we come back, you are going to talk to us about the Japanese pavilion's never built marquee attraction, The Winds of Change. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We've talked about Epcot this entire show. Let me keep that train rolling. Let's talk about 
the unbuilt Japanese pavilion marquee attraction, The Winds of Change. Jim, I always thought, and you and I have always talked about, mm -hmm. I thought the original marquee attraction was some sort, sort of like Mount Fuji roller coaster. No? That was a, a, during the Disney decade when January of 1990, Michael Eisner announced this whole array of attractions that were going to be built across the globe. And sadly, a lot of those ideas fell off the table as of April of 1992 when you were a Disney Open. And, mm. you know, that suddenly, you know, that spending billions didn't seem like such a good idea. But the reason I kind of circled back on the Japan Pavilion and particularly the, the attraction they were looking to build there is we've talking on this show about the various film attractions that were done for Epcot. And back in the day, I think we talked about earlier in the show, Randy Bright. Uh, he was mm -hmm. Wed's director of scripts and, and show development. And he was interviewed in the spring of 1982, prior to the opening of, of Epcot. He talked about how all of the motion pictures in Epcot had to work together as a system to complement each other. For example, we can't have a scene appearing in one film similar to a scene that appears in another film, which was Randy's polite way of saying he'd seen one too many Disney theme park attractions that ended with dramatic footage of a, a rocket from the Apollo program blasting off. <laughs> right. How many, how many attractions showed a, showed a rocket launch, right? American Adventure, uh, Hall of Presidents. Oh, yeah. Right? There were a bunch of them, yeah. right? And, and that's the thing. Randy actually started out his first job working for the Disney company, he was the walk-around spaceman character in Tomorrowland at Disneyland. He grew up working at the park, so he's like, we have to be better at this. And at a park like Epcot, for example, when you were talking about the Beauty and the Beast show, it's like, shown on one screen in that five-screen yeah. theater. And it's like, that's such a waste, given the fact that didn't they just upgrade the projectors in that theater to, to the 4K digital projection? So... Right, so Impressions de France, again, a, a film that is now, what, 40 years old, yeah. is going to be shown in 4K. They've, they've remastered it. And it's never going to look but better. We, we can only get one screen for Beauty and the Beast. And again, symbiosis. I mean, people forget that back in the day, that, that was one of the first places you go, could go to see 70mm. Not only that, but that film was projected 30 frames per second, which, remember, standard film projection is 24 frames per second. So... Right. You were getting, a, you know, not only a giant image, but a super defined image. I mean, it just did. And smooth, yeah. Yeah and, yeah, and that was the thing. The notion was that, that here was this theme park filled with the, these film attractions. In fact, that on opening day, if you counted every single film element at Epcot, there were over four hours of footage had been produced. A full hour of that was the original O Canada, the Impressions to France, and the Symbiosis movie. Randy was determined that when it came to this park, there wouldn't be repetition. So, for example, uh, when it came to the Japan Pavilion, and everybody wanted some sort of a travel log, what they initially proposed for that Pavilion on World Showcase was that uh, they were going to have a simulated bullet train ride. And the idea was that as you move through this attraction, you'd get to see these amazing chunks of countryside and cityscapes, but all of it at 200 miles per hour. And it would not only give you, you know, a un unique way to have a, a film shown at Epcot, but also, right. to be honest, you know, Future World and World Showcase didn't really have anything that bordered on thrill ride. And this could sort of kind of be a thrill ride. Oh, it's a fantastic idea. Well, anyway, as of 1975, in fact, the annual report not only features a description of the Japanese pavilion was going to be, it's mentioned that it would have national ex uh, exhibits, 
all followed by a simulated high-speed train ride to the Japanese countryside, but they actually have a piece of concept art for it. Ooh, really? Yeah. Now, downside, though, is in this very same report, you learn for the very first time that the Walt Disney Productions is in continuing discussions with Mitsu and Company Limited, the Mitsu Real Estate Development Company Limited, and Kensei Electric Railway Company, regarding the development of an entirely new amusement park and related facility on approximately 590 acres of land bordered on three sides by water at the north end of Tokyo Bay in Japan. Did that theme park ever work out, Jim? Yes, <laughs> it did. It's, it's <laughs> did it? Tokyo Disneyland. Okay. Right. It opened in April of 80, uh, 1983 and was a hit right out of the box. But this is eight years earlier, and Walt Disney Productions really, really, really wants the Tokyo Bay project to go forward because they're counting on that money to help to build Epcot. So at this point, they're very deferential to uh, Japanese officials. So okay. the Michikachi department store chain would offers to pick up the cost of building the entire Japan, Japan pavilion. Sign here. Well, but the, the <laughs> thing is that, again, when you're in a situation like that, when somebody's willing to write that big a check, they often set up turns and conditions and... and one of the things Mitsukashi wanted was they wanted the Japanese pavilion to be built right next door to the American Adventure. And so Disney's like, oh, okay. Oh, it's like, okay, we can do that. Then Mitsukashi learns about the centerpiece attraction that, that's being proposed for the, the United States Pavilion. And, and now I'm quoting from the Walt Disney Productions 1978 report, which, which said that this show would trace the story of the American people from their first step on Plymouth Rock to the first step on the moon. There seems to be a major a major event between those two dates that did involve Japan and the United States. We're going to get to that in a moment, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but you're not wrong. Um, anyway, executives of this department store chain now wanted the centerpiece attraction of the Japanese pavilion to be just like the American Adventure, which didn't thrill Randy Bright because he's actually the Imagineer who after River we we talked about that that Mark Davis you know uh, you know working on version of the America right yeah so they they wanted it to be a show similar in technology to the American Adventure with the different show scenes and with with the animatronics with the dimensional sets oh, and the projected yeah, effects that wouldn't mm. well now I mean it's a it's a great show I understand why why people would want mm -hmm. want one of their own but next door to each other. It's like showing up to a wedding and wearing a white, a white uh, dress. And I've, I've done that, Jim, and it, the, trust me, the bride was not happy. <laughs> well, again, you, you've nailed what, what – and, and here's the problem. You know, it's like how she's agreed to write this giant check, and they've already caved on the location issue. So it's like, all right, what do we do? How do we make these shows different? And Randy's like, well, wait, 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 wait. The American Adventure is – we're doing this in as a traditional theater show, as in people walk down. They, they You know, there's a proscenium, and they, they sit there, and they, they watch the show, and it all unfolds. You know, curtains open and folds in front of them. So, now, wait a minute. We're the Disney company. We do theater shows in a lot of different ways. Like, for example, Carousel of Progress or American Adventure, where, Ooh, right. you know, we, we have the theater go-round set up. And so, what Randy proposes is, well, look – Let's talk about doing that show about Japanese history, but let's look at doing it in the theater ground setup. And so, again, 1978 okay. annual report. They describe as part of the report the show that's going to be called The Winds of Change. This history of Japan attraction is described 
as a carousel theater show told in four acts featuring audio animatronics and film. It, it traces a, a traditional Japanese family from <laughs> pre-electricity. <laughs> but to get back to your earlier point, you know, that the, the thing of American Adventure is that right from the get-go, Randy wanted this to be a warts and all history of the United States. So yet that meant no shying away from the issues of slavery or, for that matter, the driving of the indigenous people of North America off of their land. And so when the imaginators sit down with the executives of Michikashi and, and ask, okay, so are you willing to take a similar approach to the winds of change? And, and do you guys want to discuss you know, the more problematic aspects of Japanese history, like, say, the country's actions during World War II? <laughs> they were like, no, we do not. Well, that's, that's the thing. It's like, why bring that up now? That happened so long ago, 35, what? 40 <laughs> years like, ago. There were, there were barely a, tens of millions of people who were alive during this time. <laughs> what, what? No one remembers that. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. you know, Disney World is built in Florida, where... How many World War II veterans have since retired? How many retirees moved to Florida in the 70s and 80s, right? As far as these concerned, World War II folks are concerned, World War II is not ancient history. You know, it, it just happened. It happened to me. Right, right, yeah. It yeah. happened to them directly, right. All right. right. And since, and, and the Imagineers and, and, and Mitsukachi executives go back and forth on this issue. And, and remember, this oh, is, I can imagine what that's like. Yeah, they just can't get past this one story point. And so, the carousel building actually gets built as the Japanese pavilion. I mean, because remember, this is part of the plan as far back as November seventy-eight. So it's built. Really, it's sitting back there now, Len. But by the time. We're creeping up on the actual opening of Epcot in, in the, you know, the fall of 1982. And what ends up happening is that they announce, okay, well, when it comes to winds of change, which, by the way, now the name has changed to meet the world, this is now going to get pushed off till October 1st, 1983. So this attraction will debut as part of Epcot's first anniversary. But, of course, then what happens is Epcot actually opens, and by the, the spring of 83 it's already become apparent that epcot has you know some issues attendance wise and it's not meeting financial projections and this is when it you know the attraction basically quietly falls off the table now mind you they built two of them len oh really the one that was built for tokyo disneyland actually does open and you know that that for japan when it gets to the point where they discuss World War II, what you hear are very loud noises off stage. Right, uh, planes and yeah, yeah. But it's like we had some some difficult times, but that's past now. And now, and then they launch into to modern Japan. And again, Mitsukashi is a department store chain. And so, in the end, what ended up happening with that giant theater around building, which has been standing empty this entire time, though, uh, to circle back to, to your idea about the, wasn't there a bullet train ride supposed to go into Tokyo? And in fact, yes, for a time, they looked at putting that in there. In fact, that that's where the pre-show load area for uh, the, the bullet train coaster was supposed to go. Oh, really? But these days, the only thing that's in the carousel building is extra stock for the Mitsukashi store at the Japan Pavilion. Epcot 
was supposed to be full of all of these different show experiences. And this show, which was supposed to be maybe a little too close in structure and style to the American Adventure, you know, at least would have brought a, a theater ground experience to, you know, to that park. But again, it would have been interesting to see if they got it open, how all of the, the veterans of Florida would have responded to the whole, <laughs> yeah. you know, what happened to Wolf? That, that would have been some public relations challenges, I think, uh, at least initially. Oh, very much so. Very much so. But yeah. But to your point, if you think about World Showcase from Morocco through Africa, right? So you've got Morocco, Japan. Morocco doesn't have a, a presentation of any kind. Mm. Japan doesn't have a presentation of any kind. America has the American Adventure. Italy has nothing. Germany has nothing. Africa Outpost has nothing. That's a long stretch oh. of World Showcase where you've got no attraction. I mean, other than, other than again, the American Adventure, which is, again, very, very good for what it is, mm -hmm. but the only thing like it. Another one or two there wouldn't be bad. And I think that's why one of the reasons why we're getting Ratatouille in, in France, right? Yeah, but remember that that attraction comes at the loss of an expansion pad. Right, right. When Epcot opened in October of 1982, there were nine countries and there were expansion pads for nine other countries. And... Yeah, and and what are the what are the expansions down to now? You've got the the adventure outpost that's been sitting there forever between uh, yeah. Germany and China. You've got you know the expansion, and that's one, right? Yeah, that's one. We got Norway. France has eaten one with the Ratatouille ride, where World Showplace, the entrance for World Showplaces, that ate a spot. So we're really down to five expansion pads at this point. That's the weirdest part of the most recent, you know, D23 Expo, that there was all of this talk about them getting official and finally talking about the Brazil Pavilion going forward. And that fell off the table for, for some reason. And again, as far back as 1981, you know, that, that's, I was just reading the Orlando Land magazine piece where uh, Bill Pfizer, I believe, was going through wet headquarters and they were showing him the model for the Costa Rica pavilion and they were talking about how John Hench had just met with the officials from Spain and they were so excited about how the Brazil pavilion was going to be the most beautiful thing that Disney had ever done. None of this stuff has happened. I still think we're going to get a, a, a country expansion at some point. I, I'd be I'd be shocked if we didn't. I, same thing. There's only, there's only so much they can do around you know new films in France mm -hmm. and bringing in attractions from uh, from other uh, theme parks. At, at some point, they're going to have to build a new country. Yeah, I get that. I get that. But I have to say that when you, you look at the one-two punch of what's happening in France between the Ratatouille ride being added and this Beauty and the Beast, that sing-along coupled with the change in area music, it doesn't bode well. Ah, I think we'll be okay. It's interesting that we uh, we end the show uh, at opposite ends of the uh, the optimism spectrum here, Jim. <laughs> okay, all right. And, Fair and enough. I say this is a guy who doesn't necessarily hasn't necessarily always liked Epcot, but the research of the show made me want to go seek out Symbiosis again. It sounds like an amazing film, right? <laughs> let's go. Let's go. Let's all go watch the Symbiosis film. There you go. So. <laughs> all right, folks. That's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. 
where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. So you may understand we're releasing our Disney music series now, right? Yes, yes. I think we, we actually did the American Adventure one where, again, we talked about the, the Mark Davis piece. And uh, we've done the, the Ice Palace. And we've got Fantastic. two more coming that are, are, are pretty exciting. All right, so go find those folks at uh, DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's headlining this year's South by Southwest Festival with a DJ set that includes an interactive gymnastics routine, re-envisioning the future of video games, inner city education, public-private partnerships, and why we should all resist formula-based media. While Aaron's doing all of that, please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.